Namani. I'm your host with me as Amanda Machaka, Wisani Matebula and Tamekuza. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. Taking a look at our top stories this hour, Zimbabwe's MDC leader advised to accept election defeat and South Africa says the DRC cannot prosper without peace. In our economics news this hour, Amplats in South Africa meets unions to find solution to proposed retrenchments and in sport, swimming South Africa happy with its team's performance at the FINA World Championships. All these are more coming up, but first it's time for the news. Here's Amanda. Zimbabwe's MDC has accused ZANU-PF supporters of attacking 42 families in the capital, Harare. MDC spokesperson Douglas Monzora says the families have been evicted from their flats. President Robert Mugabe was declared the winner in the polls, securing 61% of ballots cast compared to MDC candidate Morgan Changarai's 34%. ZANU-PF also secured 152 of 210 seats in parliament, giving it a two two-thirds majority and enabling it to change the constitution. Following the 2008 polls, MDC supporters were attacked in a nationwide campaign of violence that left 200 people dead. Meanwhile, the Federation of Unions of South Africa, FEDUSA, says the re-election of Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe is fraudulent. FEDUSA says it's received very disturbing reports of alleged vote rigging and general administrative injustice from its observer deployed in Zimbabwe during the elections. FEDUSA observer Elias Sabila. The processes which were supposed to be followed was not, was, was not adhered to. So, in, in brief... This is what we, we, we can say to the public, that the, the election in Zimbabwe was not free and fair. And the, the result, of course, was still confirmed that it was rigged. Asylum seekers in South Africa's Limpopo province have accused state organs of taking away their livelihoods. A year ago, Limpopo police closed down foreign-owned tech shops in the townships, saying that the asylum seekers would need to apply for business permits. Around 600 spaza shops were affected, resulting in about $4 million in stock losses for the foreigners. The operation specifically targeted Ethiopian and Somalian spaza shop owners. Rose, a South African and her Ethiopian-born husband, David, were left destitute after their shop was looted in the wake of the closures. She has accused the police station commander of being unsympathetic. And then I tried to call her, and then I find her in the phone. I tried to explain for her about this business, what, what, what happened. And then she told me that, no, if you marry to Ethiopia, you must go back to Ethiopia with your husband to go there and make a business in Ethiopia, not in South Africa. After that, she dropped the phone. Several thousand Islamic supporters of deposed Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi have marched through downtown Cairo calling for his reinstatement and denouncing the army general who led his overthrow. The protest took place as international envoys stepped up talks with leaders of both sides of the crisis in a bid to find a political solution and avert further bloodshed. The protest showed tension is still running dangerously high in Egypt more than a month after Mosul's removal despite the international mediation effort 
by the United States, the European Union, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. Morsi became Egypt's first freely elected president in June 2012, 16 months after the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak, who had ruled for nearly 30 years. Human Rights Watch says Syrian government forces have attacked civilian areas with ballistic missiles, causing heavy casualties. The NGO says the latest attack killed 33 civilians, including 17 children in the strategic city of Aleppo. A total of nine confirmed ballistic missile strikes have killed over 200 people. A ballistic missile enters space on its path to the target. It usually carries a large warhead and can cause massive collateral damage. And Britain and France have extended the closure of their embassies in Yemen after a U.S. warning of a possible militant attack in the region. The Arab state says it is stepping up security at ports and airports. The U.S. State Department said at the weekend that 19 U.S. embassies and consulates in the Middle East and Africa would remain closed until Saturday out of caution. It said several would have been closed anyway for most of the week due to the Eid Muslim celebrations. It had initially closed 21 U.S. diplomatic posts for the day on Sunday. Security in Yemen is a global concern as it is home to one of the most active wings of al-Qaeda. Channel Africa News. And that was Amanda Machaka with your news. She's back at 17.30 Central African time with your headlines. On to our stories for the day. Zimbabwe's outgoing prime minister and leader of opposition movement for democratic change, Morgan Twangirai, appears to be losing his allies following an election defeat to Robert Mugabe. Professor Lovemore Maduku has urged Twangirai to accept defeat and move the nation forward. Maduku is leader of a civic society organization, National Constitutional Assembly, stakeholder when MDC was formed. Simon Mochemo reports. I told you so. Professor Lovemore Maduku, leader of a civic organization, National Constitutional Assembly, seemed to be telling his former ally Morgan Changrai. Movement for Democratic Change leader Morgan Changrai has rejected the election outcome that has ushered 89-year-old leader Robert Mugabe back into power. Most observation bodies including Sadak, have endorsed Mugabe's election win despite glaring irregularities. At a time when Morgan Changrai is desperate for friends, his former ally, Professor Lavmo Maduku, has urged him to accept defeat. He said at a media briefing in Harare on Monday. The election results have been announced. There are winners and losers, and the compelling need for our country to move forward. The NCA urges the losers to concede defeat and take the country out of the permanent election mode it has been in for several years now. In urging the losers to concede defeat and let the country move forward, the NCA is not losing sight of the continuing desire by the people of Zimbabwe to have a to have democratic and genuinely free and fair elections. Professor Maduku said political parties in the coalition government entered into a race knowingly that the platform was not even. He told Changrai to stop complaining but rather help build Zimbabwe. 
The history and record of the NCA speaks for itself. One of the key reasons why the NCA campaigned for a no vote in the March 2013 referendum was the clear point that the proposed constitution, which is now the constitution, provided an insufficient framework for fair, transparent and credible elections. It is well known that the political parties in the inclusive government united in their campaign for a yes vote and hoodwinked the public. It is the NCA's firm view, and I must emphasize that it is the NCA's firm view that the complaints raised against the 31 July 2013 poll by the losers do not raise anything new and cannot be used as a basis for rejecting the results of an election in which they participated voluntarily. He said it is not desirable for Zimbabwe for political parties to get into an election just to win. They should also accept defeat when they lose. It is not desirable for this country. It is not desirable for us to encourage a state of affairs in our country where political parties participate in an election with only two scenarios. Either they win or they dispute the result. Losing an election must always be one of the scenarios. In the circumstance of this particular election, the complaints must be taken into account for the next elections and for the reform agenda, which remains very much incomplete. The constitutional law expert with the University of Zimbabwe said losing candidates should move forward and forget about the July 31 elections. Provided the votes have been cast freely, the result is binding. The way forward is to focus on moving the country forward while preparing for the next elections. The interests of this country require that we all move forward focusing on building the economy of the country, deepening its democratic systems, promoting peace and unity, and encouraging all of us to participate in the public affairs of our country. We should put the election behind us and take lessons for the future. Inasmuch as the West would have preferred a different poll result, Maduku said Zimbabwe should move forward. Maduku defended the move by his organization and said the views in NCA should not be translated as telling Morgan Changrai, we told you so. Now we are thinking this way, that the country must move forward and that uh, those who lost elections must accept defeat. <coughs> That's our view. But they are also entitled to think differently. So we are not here to be saying, we told you so. We don't exist uh, to do that. We exist to push what we believe is right for the country. But here, I would really want you, if you want to understand the NCA, we're very concerned about the state of affairs in the country. We have to get out of election mode and move forward. Meanwhile, MDC says some of their members have been evicted from their homes in former MDC strongholds, which have now been reclaimed by ZANU-PF. Scores of families are alleged to have been evicted from their homes in Bari, a high-density suburb in Harare, now under ZANU-PF. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. For more analysis of the political situation in Zimbabwe, here is Professor Shadra Guto, the Director for the Center for African Renaissance Studies at the University of South Africa.
Well, it means that for ZANU-PF, if they bury their head in the sand, they would want to believe that they have won overwhelmingly and that people ought to accept the results. However, it is a question of whether that is the true state of affairs. To start with, we are dealing with ZANU-PF that had a minority in parliament in the 2008 chaotic elections that led to the government of power sharing. And um, all of a sudden, it has more than two-thirds majority elected in courts. Then you have the question of Robert Mugabe himself. It is doubtful whether he won the elections in the runout of 2008. And now he's got more than 61% of the total votes. Not just a simple majority, but a very large majority. Uh, it raises a lot of concern. And the concern is basically one where you have to have an authentic voter registration process, which is verified by those who have registered to ensure that they have been registered to vote nationally for the presidency, that they have been properly registered to vote in the constituencies they should vote in, that they are also properly registered in the local government level to vote. Uh, people were not given that chance, they were denied that chance to be able to verify. From that point of view, it is very, very difficult to know who really voted and who did not, who was properly registered and who was not. And from that point of view, the elections don't seem to be credible at all. They may have been violence-free, but the concept of free and fair requires an accurate voter enrollment process, the voting process, and the tallying of the votes. There's a lot of doubt that those who are done properly. Prof, SADC and the AU Observer Missions have endorsed these elections as free and peaceful, despite claims of the massive irregularities. What could be their reasons for that? Well, I think it is the use of the terms rather inappropriately. They are narrowing down the question of free to mean free of violence. Yes, we must accept that this time around, the level of violence was minimal, if any. And from that point of view, it was free of violence. But that is not what free and fair elections uh, mean. It means much more than that. So I'm indicating that it is not free of tampering with the process, but there seems to have been serious tampering with the whole process. So it is very sad that SADC that has certain guidelines, and the AU that has a very clear guidelines, but also a very important instrument, the African Charter on Democracy Elections and Governance, is really just endorsing a process which they can see was seriously compromised. I think the electoral management body in Zimbabwe ought to 
really come out clearly. And the, if the matter goes to court, to produce all the evidence so that people can be able to see the fact through evidence rather than just suspicions. At this time, it is more suspicions rather than verified evidence in a court of law. Changarai has vowed to challenge the elections in court, election results. Do you see anything different coming out from this? I'm skeptical about something different coming because it depends on whether or not the courts have been transformed from what they have been a rubber stamp of uh, government for quite some time over the last 10 years or so. And it is therefore very, very important to see, are we dealing with a credible court that is independent, competent, and, um, you know, applies the Constitution and the law rather than really pandering to the ruling party. So that would be the most important thing. Secondly, it would be important on what type of evidence is has been gathered. Uh, has the gathering of that evidence been thorough and uh, properly assessed? Uh, we saw in the Kenyan elections where there was a rush to go to court. The court had no time, and uh, the court ended up declaring elections to have been free and fair, but saying there were a lot of irregularities and so on. I think that uh, Morgan Shangri and the opposition as a whole should learn from the court case, which is going on in Ghana, challenging the election of the president there because they have gathered credible evidence that is before the court. It has not been finalized, but that is the quality of what you take to the court, not just rumors and so on. And that was uh, Professor Shadra Guto, the director for the Center for African Renaissance Studies at the University of South Africa, talking on the line to Lulu Gabu. The just-ended International Conference on the Great Lakes region in Nairobi has failed to offer any radical solution to the deteriorating security situation in eastern parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo. A final communique released at the end of the conference urged regional countries to refrain from interfering in the internal affairs of member countries. Mwaike Konya reports from Nairobi. The just-concluded extraordinary summit of the International Conference of the Great Lakes Region here in Nairobi has failed to offer any strong indicator or tangible progress in the effort to restore peace in the lawless eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. For a start, the Nairobi Great Lakes meeting was watered down by the absence of key players, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda, Joseph Kabila of DRC, and Jakaki Kwete of Tanzania. But the other key player, President Yori Museveni of Uganda, was present. Although Uganda's role as a neutral arbiter in the DRC conflict has always been in doubt due to her military activity in eastern DRC. Uganda's military has been accused of engaging in illegal gold trade in the eastern part of DRC. Addressing the meeting for the first time, President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya urged the regional leaders to show more commitments in the restoration of peace in the region and to refrain from interfering with the affairs of regional countries. If we continue to show the kind of commitment that we have shown, I am convinced, I am certain that we will be able to achieve peace in the DRC, peace in the Central African Republic, peace 
in the Sudan and South Sudan and ensure that we are all able to focus on our priorities. For me, the balance of commitments and effort must be in favor of economic development. Indeed, I look forward to working together in the Great Lakes region to build infrastructure and peace as well as trade and investment. The mood at the Nairobi summit indicated that the Kinshasa was yet to drop the long-held position that Uganda won in the rebellion and was still hesitant to engage all the stakeholders. And according to political analysts at the meeting Paul Alusala, the crisis in the Great Lakes region is as a result of resource competition, which has led to armed conflict and guerrilla warfare. The Great Lakes region, just as you, the term connotates Great Lakes, you can look at the wealth in terms of uh, water bodies, for instance. Lake Tanganyika is one of the richest lakes in uh, natural resources, fish, and, uh, and even in terms of navigation. Look at uh, Lake Victoria, we have the Kivus. Uh, lake Kivu is very rich in, in gas, besides the aspect of minerals that surround that particular lake. I mean, it's, it's extremely rich. We all know about the natural resource factor leading to competition that is currently merging with the armed conflict in the region, in the country. And uh, the whole region, if you look, uh, tourism alone, even in Rwanda, in Burundi, in Uganda, these are flourishing countries that rare gorillas, for example, the only place you can find them would be in the volcano mountains of Rwanda and, and, and the Congo. That is massive natural resource that needs to be exploited, but you can't exploit it without peace. So those are resources that are unquantifiable in the current global one. And according to a joint communique at the meeting, the international community should support regional efforts to stabilize the region. Kenya's Foreign Minister, Amin Abdallah. Call on the international community to, re- to increase support to existing regional efforts to address the alarming humanitarian situation in the DRC, in the Central African Republic, and Darfur. The meeting also urged President Joseph Kabila of the DRC to put in place a mechanism to oversee governance reforms in the country. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konya in Nairobi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The government of South Africa has said peace and stability in the Democratic Republic of Congo is very important since Southern Africa cannot prosper unless the DRC prospers. According to South Africa's embassy in Kinshasa, South Africa is engaged to try and assist its very important partner, that is the Democratic Republic of Congo, that's facing different challenges. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The Democratic Republic of Congo is very important for South Africa and the Southern Africa in whole since it's on a very good economic position for the region. That's indeed what the Embassy of South Africa here in Kinshasa said this Monday, emphasizing the importance of working together for this country to be in peace and stability. Speaking to Channel Africa, the political councillor of the South Africa's embassy here in Kinshasa said, Southern Africa can't prosper unless the DRC prospers. Marius Conradi. It's almost only necessary to have a look at a map to realize how important the DRC is. Huge country, twice the size of South Africa, at the very heart of our continent. 
It is surrounded by nine other countries, many of which are also our partners in the Southern Africa Development Community. And to this you add immense mineral riches and natural resources. So I think it is quite clear that Southern Africa can't work properly and Southern Africa can't prosper unless the DRC prospers. And it's for that reason that DRC is of such importance to us and why we need to work together in bringing peace and stability to the country. South Africa's signatory to the Peace, Security and Cooperation Agreement that was signed also by our president on the 24th of February. And this we see as probably the most important international agreement to date to try and reach durable, lasting political solutions to the challenges that the DRC is facing. And South Africa is engaging not only bilaterally but also at the multilateral level to try and assist our very important partner, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Too many people believe the Democratic Republic of Congo is very important for the whole African continent because it's a very rich country that's located in the heart of Africa. Most of analysts here think that it's too important for African countries to always work together and deliver concrete actions instead of delivering speeches. One of them is Mr. Jean-Jacques Moila. DRC, first of all, is in the heart of Africa, so is a central point. It must be cared from other countries, not especially only the southern of Africa, also the eastern of also the western of Africa, because we are in the heart. And if you want to develop Africa, you have to develop also the Central Africa, especially DRC. This case for South Africa, we talk about since already 12 years that South Africans have to be involved really to stabilize peace and also the economy of the DRC. It took a long time about conferences, talk over there, talk over here and so. But the concrete action in the field, we don't feel it. South Africa is one of the three countries that have sent troops for the UN Intervention Brigade whose mandate is to neutralize the numerous armed groups operating in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamwezi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. A newly appointed executive director of the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and Women Empowerment, Pumzile Mlambongoka, has been cautioned to represent women of the African continent as she executes her new duties at the UN in New York soon. This emerged in Pretoria over the weekend where Women Forums honoured the former South African Deputy President for her new achievement. Women groupings also marked the start of Women's Month in Pretoria. Fanuel Schumer reports. A standing ovation for a woman who has achieved a lot in her political career. First as a minister for numerous portfolios in the South African government, former deputy president of the country, and now the country's envoy to the United Nations. Pumzilem Lambonukam says the women in South Africa have made big strides in empowering themselves, but more needs to be done. For me, the economic empowerment of women is what is important for us to also conquer violence against women. Women are abused because they do not have economic empowerment in the main at home, because they cannot up and go and leave an abuser. 
if we do not address fundamentally the issue of economic empowerment of women, a lot of women will tolerate situations that are very dangerous to them and their children. And lastly, I want to highlight the fact that for me, collaboration is crucial. Former chairperson of South Africa's Electoral Commission, Brigalia Bam, says Mlambo Nuga's appointment is long overdue. She, however, advised him not to overlook the interests of the women of the African continent in her duty. But you must know, Kumzile, that you represent not only South Africa, you represent the women of this continent, you represent the women of the world. And what will hurt you most, as you travel, you will see those women of the Filipinos being exploited all over where you go. You will meet them in the Middle East, you will meet them in those rich countries where there's oil and you feel sorry for them because they've left hundreds of their families and you will see the poverty, you will go to the slums. On the other hand, Minister for Women, Children and People Living with Disability, Lulu Tingwanam, has urged Mlambonyukam to represent South Africa to her best of her ability in the UN. Where you are going, you are going to represent us. You are going to represent the women of Africa, and we are confident that you will represent us well, that you are equal to the task, and that you will make us proud. Gospel music star Deborah Fraser, who performed at the occasion to bid farewell for the newly appointed executive director of the United Nations Women, recalls how she used to take orders from Lambonukam while still a high school learner in KwaZulu-Natal. She was my teacher when I was still at a high school called Othlange High School, which was a boarding school. She used to teach history. You could tell that uh, she used to be a very focused teacher. Another South African woman to serve an international organization, former public and administration minister Geraldine Fraser-Mleketim, will be leaving the UN at the end of this month to join the African Development Bank as special envoy for gender. Fanuel Schumer, Pretoria. Time check, 17.30 Central African time. Here is Amanda with your headlines. Thanks, Rupedim. Good evening. Zimbabwe's opposition MDC says it's ready to challenge the election results. This after President Robert Mugabe won the presidential poll with over 61% of the vote, while his NUPF party obtained a two-thirds majority in parliamentary elections. Meanwhile, both the United States and Britain have expressed doubts over the credibility of the presidential and parliamentary elections. U.S. American Secretary of State John Kerry says he does not believe the official results represent a credible expression of the will of the people. Several thousand Islamist supporters of deposed Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi have marched through downtown Cairo calling for his reinstatement and denouncing the army general who led his overthrow. The protest took place as international envoys stepped up talks with leaders of both sides of the crisis in a bid to find a political solution and avert further bloodshed. 
and Britain and France have extended the closure of their embassies in Yemen after a U.S. warning of a possible militant attack in the region. The Arab state says it is stepping up security at ports and airports. The U.S. State Department said at the weekend that 19 U.S. embassies and consulates in the Middle East and Africa would remain closed until Saturday out of caution. And those were your news headlines. Total control of the epidemics or TCE campaign has now reached over 5 million people in a strive to fight the HIV and AIDS and tuberculosis epidemics in communities across South Africa. The TCE model is a systematic house-to-house, person-by-person um, campaign which targets areas of about 100,000 people over three years in rural areas and urban informal settlements. In every area, 50 local people are recruited and trained to become field officers, this also reducing unemployment. The uh, campaign this year marks 10 years since its inception. Here's more from Teresa Tegere, Assistant Partnership Officer for Humana People to People in South Africa. It is one of the Humana People to People programs addressing the question of HIV and AIDS and TB. It's a three-year campaign program where it's focusing on door-to-door mobilization, where we approach people you know, as individuals, it's house-to-house, uh, person-to-person in the piece. What we do is we, when we go into an area, we map an area of 100,000 people, and then we have 50 locals that are then doing house-to-house, talking person-to-person, and they do this for a period of three years where they mobilize, you know, they give, share information on HIV and AIDS and TB and other related issues around HIV and AIDS. They mobilize people to call for uh, HIV tests. After testing, it's also not just to test people, but it's also to find out those that tested, for example, HIV positive, what is the process for them to, you know, to live a positive life, those who need treatment, how do we get them to get into the system, and those that are on treatment, then we also secure that, you know, they get supported. We have a program that we call a TRIO program, TRIO meaning a group of three, where we involve the one taking the treatment and the two supporters, preferably two family members to support the individual who is on treatment. And then we also address the question of those that are HIV negative, how should they, you know, live a negative life, how should they protect themselves from, you know, they shouldn't be infected. I mean, the moment they get to know their HIV status, what are the steps to do, to take? You've mentioned earlier that um, your model is that of a systematic house-to-house or person-to-person yes. kind of approach. Um, surely you must be facing quite a number of challenges. You know, every community has got its own challenges. And then when you come in, knock on somebody's door, then they want to know, for example, what kind of service, I mean, what are you bringing to us? So we have that responsibility as well to explain. So you look here, we are here with this program, and we're also, of course, not just saying we don't care about what is happening. We also have to acknowledge there's been a lot of programs that are there, but what we are here for is this of You know, some people then understand right away. They give us the opportunity that we talk to them. Some then, you know, they don't want to be associated with, you know, those people, you know, for example, in South Africa, we use a red T-shirt. Then they're like, okay, those with red T-shirts, they only meet those that, you know, are HIV positive. So we also have to educate the community that, you know, we are reaching each and every individual because one way or another, 
you might not be very positive, but you're affected if you have a family member, you know, that is infected. So you should know what to do and you should know even how to protect yourself. Now, you're marking the 10 years of your services and with that you issued a book titled The TCE Stories in which people from different communities tell their stories of how you have helped them. Talk us through some of the stories there. What, what is the response from people? It's a book that contains, you know, statements from individuals where they feel the coming of TCE has liberated them, them as individuals. I can give an example of the field officer who has been doing door-to-door. They've given their own testimonies on how the program has changed them as individuals in, in their life, the way that they have lived with regard to HIV and AIDS. We have communities that have been helped with field officers to say, you know, they never knew how to deal with it within the husband and the wife. One is HIV positive, one is not. But, you know, obviously it brings friction, but field officers went in and people to understand because that's what misses sometimes that people have misinformation. So with that, you know, constant visit, discussing and they trust the field officers that has helped. And also with the Department of Health with the uh, increase in uptake of uh, HCT, I would say people went for HIV tests. So we also have uh, people from the departments of health, social workers, because then we link people to the help that they need. So it has been quite uh, tremendous that people have seen the HCT program being helpful to their lives, to their families. And uh, that was uh, Teresa Tigeri, Assistant Partnership Officer for Humana People to People in South Africa, talking to Komoto Mopulani. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Africa Digest with myself, Kobe Diwa Namani. The International Institute for Environment and Development has published a report that identifies research that can shed light on the positive and negative effects of Chinese investment in African forests and how to improve the governance of timber trade. Here's more from Lila Buckley, senior researcher on China at the Institute. This report is coming out of a meeting that we had in March in Beijing, and it was the launch of the China-Africa Forest Governance Learning Platform, which is a platform we've been working on with partners in Africa and China for the last couple of years. So this was the first coming together of those partners, and the platform aims to strengthen understanding and partnership, as well as eventually joint action to improve forest governance between China and Africa. So this report was just basically detailing what that meeting was about and the aims of this platform. From the report, what could be said about the current uh, Africa-China forest governance? Well, the key message coming out of the discussions from the meeting is that there's need for better information. What we found in preliminary research leading into this meeting is that there are very divergent perceptions about the situation of how, what the trade actually looks like and what the effects are on the ground. And so both partners in China and from African countries felt that one of the 
key things that we need to do next is to collaborate together on research to get better information. We do know that trade in timber products is increasing, but what is difficult is understanding specifically what the effects of that are on the ground in Africa and really the nature of, of that trade increase. If you break it down into different types of products, it becomes much more complex with some types of products increasing and others decreasing and a wide range of reasons for those trends, which are not very well understood yet. And uh, what could be said about the positive and negative effects of uh, Chinese investment in African forests? Well, again, it's pretty much the same. You know, there's not very good information about the effects on the ground. What this platform is trying to do is identify specifically what those gaps of information are and then try to fill them with. We have researchers and journalists and civil society organizations as well as government partners involved in this platform who are all very keen to have better information so that action can be taken both in terms of improving policy and improving practices of Chinese actors on the ground in Africa and giving opportunities for various stakeholders in Africa to engage more productively with those Chinese counterparts. So the effects are still pretty unclear and very different in different regions. We do have a report coming out in the coming months actually two different reports, one on the Africa side and one on the China side, that look at what the current evidence is and perceptions of the evidence on China-Africa forest governance issues. And so we've tried to look at what the existing research can tell us and where the gaps are, as well as perceptions in China and in African countries of that relationship and those trends. But so... Please do come back to look at, at those reports to see what we can say so far. But really the message is that more research needs to be done and ideally needs to be done collaboratively between both Chinese and African stakeholders so that it's not one-sided information. What could be said about the compliance with laws protecting forests and local benefits? Similarly, it really is too early to comment on that at this point with existing information. We are hoping at the end of this year we plan to send some Chinese journalists to Africa with the support of our partners on the ground to do some investigative reporting, which will give a better indication on you know, what the actual activities look like on the ground. In terms of compliance, Overall, with international standards and legislation, that is something that is very important to Chinese stakeholders. We were had participation in this meeting from the State Forestry Administration and the Chinese Academy of Forestry, and they all emphasized that they're working very hard to set up a system of improving the legality of trade with timber products with Africa, and that includes, you know, getting a better understanding of what that legislation looks like and how companies can actually comply. They're still in the early stages of that, and that's certainly an area that where there's room for improvement, but what we found was that there is the commitment there, and we hope that this platform will be able to support action towards achieving that.
And that was Lala Buckley, Senior Researcher on China at the International Institute for Environment and Development on the line from London, talking to Wandile Kalipa. It's time now for our economics update. Good evening. Amplers in South Africa and unions in the platinum sector are meeting to find a way to deal with the proposed retrenchment of 6,000 workers in a race against time. The deadline for the decision is Saturday, August the 10th. But the National Union of Mine Workers seems to have changed its tune over the retrenchments. It now says it is looking at severance packages and the retrenchment of those who are medically unfit. Earlier in the year, the NUM said it was opposed to any retrenchments at Amplers and even threatened to go on strike when the mine said it would cut 6,000 instead of 14,000 jobs. The NUM's Elisiba Sushok. Given the figures that we have, that we have seen from Amplers, it makes no reason whatsoever for one to retain a number of people when that process could be achieved through natural attrition and voluntary service packages. If we allow that process to go on as we agreed, there is no point of wanting to replenish anyway. South Africa's mass market lender African Bank Investment says it will raise up to $406 million through a rights offering to shore up its balance sheet. Its business is facing slower growth with an increase in bad loan costs. Murafet Tabane reports. The news saw African Bank's share price plummet 11% when the JSE opened, but have recovered. The bank maintains that the retail environment remains unpredictable and challenging. Its earnings for the second half of the year are expected to be lower than that of the first half. African Bank is in the process of rolling out a significantly improved proposition for low-risk customers. Meanwhile, the bank's rights offering will be fully underwritten by Goldman Sachs. Libya's government is working to end protests at oil facilities that have cut exports and its oil production has risen to nearly half its normal rate. Disruptions to the North African OPEC producers' oil sector risk crippling its economic lifeline and choking off state revenues. As part of the latest wave of unrest, security guards seeking more pay have shut down the major export terminals of Isaida and Ras Lanouf. Protests that involved demands by local people for more oil jobs had already closed at the Zutina terminal earlier this July. The Egyptian pound appreciated at a central bank sale of foreign currency today, prolonging a gradual increase begun after the military removed President Mohamed Morsi on July 3rd. The central bank sold $37.6 million and the cut-off price strengthened to 6.9849 Egyptian pounds per dollar from 6.9858 on Thursday, according to data from the central bank. The bank had offered $40 million, the cut-off price on July 3rd. Third was a seventh was rather seven point zero one eight four. And European shares climbed to a new two-month high led by basic resources stocks after positive analyst comments and data showing China's services sector steadied last month. The stock's Europe 600 basic resources index rose 1%, helped by a 1.6% rise in Anglo-American 
when Citigroup raised its target price for the stock after the company's results. European basic resources stocks have gained more than 10% since early July after falling sharply this year on concerns about the demand for metals in top consumer China. The sector index is still down by 19% in 2013. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 9.85 to the rand, at 0.62 to the British pound, and at 0.75 to the euro. In static currencies, one U.S. dollar is worth 8.45 Botswana pulas and 5.32 Zambian quatches. On to commodities, gold is trading at $1,310 and platinum is at $1,447 an ounce. And finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $109.25 a barrel. And that's all for now. Time now to take a look at our sporting update. Here is the one and only Tanikuza. In your sports update, let's start with swimming. Team South Africa will arrive back home tomorrow morning from Barcelona in Spain. South Africa bag a total of five medals, three gold and a silver and one bronze. At the just-concluded World Final Championships in Barcelona, it's a great improvement from the team that won in 2011 in Shanghai in China, where South Africa won just two medals. Swimming South Africa's marketing and communications manager, Godfrey Monet, says that the Federation is proud of the swimmers' achievements. The team did very well. We are very impressed with the performance, what we saw in um, Barcelona, because if you remember in 2011, it was not a good year for us at the World Champs, especially for Chad. It was the first time he was competing at the World Champs in Shanghai in 2011, and he could only manage to swim in the final, but he didn't win any medal. But, uh, you know, what a big news for us, good for South Africans. Chad lost two gold medals this year at the World Championships in Barcelona. So we are very happy with that performance. And not only him, also, if you look at uh, Cameron Van Aberg, you know, the first day of uh, the FINA World Championships in Barcelona, winning a silver medal. And then after coming, you know, back with um, a gold medal in the 50-meter breaststroke. And also the youngster, Julio Zorzi, what amazing performance that we saw from him. Because we were not expecting any medal from him. It was his first time that he was competing at the World Championships. And he managed to get that bronze medal in that event. And now in cricket, South Africa's T20 captain Faf Duplessis has praised his side's character and determination after they won their first limited over series in Sri Lanka. The Proteus defeated Sri Lanka by 22 runs in the second T20 international at the weekend to hold an unassailable 2-0 lead in three-match T20 international series. Duplessis says tomorrow's dead rubber would provide an opportunity to try new combinations, particularly looking ahead to the ICC World T20 in Bangladesh, we should be played in similar conditions. And our netball, the South African Spa National Netball Championship, gets underway today at the Royal Bafokan Sports Palace in Rustenburg in the country's northwest province and will conclude on Saturday. Defending champions Gauteng North expect a stiff competition as they try to win the title for the fourth time. Eshla Flismas is in Rustenburg in the northwest province and filed this report.
The Spa National Netball Championships kick off today in Rustenburg with defending champions Gauteng North exuding confidence. Going for their fourth consecutive title, the team from Pretoria hope to once again emerge as champions at the Royal Buffer King Sports Palace this week. Thrilled to have their national players back in the side, captain of the team, Ruzan Mateisa, explains what she believes will give the team the edge. We have an amazing coach, amazing management, and um, a lot of Proteas. We've got, you know, five current squad and Protea players. Play begins today and continues until Saturday. Ursula Flismas, Rustenburg. And finally, organizers of the Mandela Day Marathon say that they are ready for the event, which will be held later this month. Umkungulov District Mayor Yusuf Pamchi has declared the readiness at the 51st anniversary since the arrest of former President Nelson Mandela outside Hawick. The marathon's route starts where Mandela delivered his last speech before his arrest at the Mbali Township outside Peter Marisbeck and ends where he eventually was captured outside Hawick. And in the West, uh, in West Africa, Blessing Okakbare will lead Nigeria's 20-man delegation to the 14th IWAF World Championships in Moscow and Russia. The championships are set to start in five days' time. Nigeria will compete in the country's area of specialities, such as the men and women sprint, the relay and the quarter miles. Nigerian athletes will be participating in the championships knowing that not too much work went into their preparations because Athletics Federation of Nigeria did not have funds to take athletes into camp. Our correspondent, Tony Ubani, reports. Track and field ball down at Dewele. It's not happy that Nigeria will be participating at the World Athletics Championship in Moscow, Russia, with just one athlete in mind. Blessing Okabare is ranked number four in the world, and she wields the potential to win a medal in Moscow. She competes in 100 meters, 200 meters, and the long jump. She has variously won this event in the different Diamond League this season, capping it all with 10.79 seconds race in London that broke a 14-year-old Africa's record. She carries the weight of over 160 million Nigerians, and Brown is not comfortable with that. I fear that Blessing may be under pressure, but I pray she remains strong. Ebele said yesterday while trying to assess the Nigerian team. We went to the London Olympics and banged all our hopes on one person. The same thing is happening today. We have a situation where the president of the Athletics Federation of Nigeria, in the person of Solomon Ogba, is spending so much of his personal money to lift the sport. It does not all go well for Nigeria because he who pays the piper dictates the tune. If the federal government was helping out, the National Sports Commission would have enough money to plan well. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and back to Hupedi Namane. This is Africa Digest. And that's Africa Digest. Today, from myself, Kopediwa Namani, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. Feel free to send in comments on the show to info at channelafrica.org or send a text message to plus 27823325905. Here's Tapedi by Judith Sapuma taking us to top of the hour. La, la, la.
Ashuba, tapedi ga utulela. 